Hi, you're listening to your Route to Wellbeing podcast. This podcast shares strategies, insights, nuggets, and tools to inspire and support you as you step boldly towards creating the well-being that you desire and deserve. Each week, I share insights and inspiration from different people who have expertise across one or more of the 11 domains of well-being. Each one of the guests that I've chosen to talk to have found the clues through their lives and experiences, through their careers and their knowledge, that I want you to have access to. My big question is how can we all pulse with energy and truly live while we're alive? I believe that these people that I'm talking to have some of the crucial answers. So relax, listen up, and thank you for tuning in. Please remember to leave us a review and also to share this podcast with anyone in your network who you think it may help. Hi, I'm Sue Fullergood from the Energy Incubator, and I'm so excited to be with you here this afternoon on your Route to Wellbeing podcast, and to have with me Andrew and Pierre Brurard, who, who um, are brothers, and I met Pierre at a Sasha meeting a few weeks ago, and I was intrigued to hear all about his work and uh, all about his philosophies and uh, what he can add and the value that he can add to our exploration of the route to well-being. And so I'm really excited to have brought both Pierre and his brother onto the show this afternoon so that we can explore the subject of allyship, uh, which they're going to tell you a lot more about as we go along. <clears throat> so Pierre is the acting director of the Center for Sexualities AIDS and Gender at the University of Pretoria. And um, Andrew is a teacher of 31 years and uh, he teaches English and is very interested in critical thinking and also um, in um, psychology and human behavior and uh, what motivates human beings. So together they have an interesting set of skills and an interesting set of uh, way of looking at the world. So let's, without further ado, introduce them and hand them the microphone. I'm gonna start with you, Pierre, and I'd love you to just tell us a little bit about your uh, career path and uh, how you got to be where you are today. Thanks, Sue, and thanks so much for the opportunity to be here. Um, we're both very uh, appreciative of this uh, of this moment, I suppose, not only to share with you individually, but to bring our story to you um, as siblings. So I'm, I'm now in my early 60s, uh, so I guess I'm at that part of my life where I'm, I'm looking back as much as I'm looking forward. Um, and this question you've asked, I suppose, is, is an invitation to think about well, what brought me to this particular moment in my life? Um, I think growing up in a in a large Catholic family gives you a particular view of the world. Uh, we lost our dad quite young, so that I think brought Andrew and I quite close together as the two youngest siblings. Um, and we 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 were not a, a well off family, so I think we what was instilled in us was were, were values around um, living a sort of a modest, upright life, perhaps. Uh, but we, we had two older sisters who were much more politically involved because they were older than us. Um, and so that, I think, also infused in us some ideas around um, social justice, making the world a better place, thinking about, um, you know, people who live on the margins of society. Um, and then it, I ended up becoming a psychologist and working a lot in the HIV field. And if you do HIV work, you, you know, it's really a lot of it is about not only understanding how societies work to include and exclude people, but also how stigma works and how processes of othering work and why many of the people, particularly in the early years who were living with HIV, you know, really experienced discrimination. So I guess my work now that it is, comes much more into the area of, of gender and sexualities has always been about thinking about who's in and who's out who's in the center, who are on the margins, and how do we bring change that is more than just individuals being nice to each other, 
but thinking about systems of power and exclusion as well. Wow. Yeah. <clears throat> Thank you for sharing that. And uh, yeah, I hope you'll unpack a little bit more um, about your own journey as we go along this afternoon. So. Thank you for that. And um, can I pass the microphone to you now, Andrew, and please tell us a little bit about how you got to be where you are today. I mean, I've taught for a long time. And I remember there was a quite a critical moment about 10 years, eight, nine, 10 years ago, in which I offered in my school environment to, to initiate a diversity and inclusion program with no experience. And I've, I've often thought it was it was quite a, a difficult, anyone who's done diversity work directly will tell you it's very difficult, very painful. Uh, I'm sure you also cause people pain as well. Um, but I always wonder why I did that. So I wasn't, but I've always been, I've always thought it's not like I'm some kind of ethical um, saint. Feels to me a very personal thing. I think I, Piers mentioned a few details from childhood that I always felt like an outsider for whatever reason. I always felt different. And I think I've always, from early on identified with people who are underprivileged or outcast or misfits in some way. Um, so it felt like a natural fit to take on diversity work. And it feels like a, for me, a very, it's almost like I'm speaking to myself and a certain part of myself um, in doing that work. Although I'm not directly involved in it, we like professionals to do the job as it should be. Um, I think, you know, a colleague of mine said, I must have ethical impulses that maybe do this work. No, maybe, but it feels to me more like a very personal thing. Um, some kind of talking to myself as that underprivileged person. So that's my initial sense of, of why I've done this kind of work. You know? And I suppose also the experience having a gay brother and a lesbian sister um, plays its part as well. Who would the gay brother be, Andrew? Oh, that's me. Yes, <laughs> I realize I left that out of my, my whole long introduction, which is the whole starting point of this journey of our conversation today, Sue. So that's an interesting brother. thing. <laughs> leaving you know, that part out. In some ways, I love that you left it out. And I hope this is not uh, the incorrect thing to say, but I often wonder why it's necessary to mention that in the first introduction of yourself because who cares whether you're gay or not in the grand scale of things if the point is you are Pierre and it's really amazing to meet you and then second to that you have special insight because you have had the journey of being a gay um, human being and so you can share with us about that and what it feels like for you. Yeah you know I mean I, I think that's such a exquisitely nuanced question in a way because it's like on the one hand my sexual orientation or gender whatever is utterly irrelevant to my humanness and people should just see me as an connect with me as another human being but on the other hand those things about me have shaped every experience of my life mm. um, how I'm viewed by society how I'm viewed by the faith that I was raised in um, the extent to which I felt embraced by the laws and systems of my country. Um, and so it, it's impossible not for that to be fundamental to my life experience, um, even the way that my relationships are viewed, for example. Um, only in recent years in South Africa were same-sex marriages made legal. Um, and so for my whole adult life, the idea that of marrying someone was never ever going to be on the agenda. Um, and so you immediately you kind of position yourself as as somehow not included in the idea of a ritual, which is all about social approval and and sort of the families and communities coming together to celebrate the love of two people. So 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 on the one hand, my queerness or my gayness is irrelevant. On the other hand, it's seminal to every life experience that I've ever had. I totally hear what you're saying. And thank you for saying it like that, because it makes it easier for me to understand why it would be important um, in your introduction. So, yeah. Can you tell us a little bit more about the experience of being gay um, as you've experienced it as a Catholic person, as a psychologist and, and so on? I sure can. <laughs> I've had a lot of experience of talking about this. I mean, I suppose, you know, for the listeners or the viewers of this to know that 
this is part of my work is to do work around identity, around sexualities, around gender, around um, diversity and transformation. So, you know, I have developed a certain level of, I suppose, confidence and, and the kind of language to describe it. Um, I'm, I'm kind of interested in the idea of not just presenting myself as a sort of strange case study, but for people to see not only the ways in which we are different, but also the ways that we are the same. Um, and I think, you know, that that's one of the things that I often talk about when I talk about my upbringing is not only that feeling that the church excluded me. Um, we grew up, as I said earlier, Catholics. And I think, you know, one has a tremendous feeling of the preachings of the church calling you words that are make you feel as if you are not only a misfit but you are evil or were or, or, or inherently disordered i think is a phrase that one of the popes has used before that's quite a lot of that's quite a heavy burden for a young mm -hmm. person to 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 take on when 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 you're seen as intrinsically or inherently disordered um but I, I grew up, and Andrew, who's only three years younger than me, we grew up in the apartheid era. Um, and and I, one of the, the laws of the country, which was the Immorality Act, um, not only forbade sexual and romantic relations between people of different race groups, but it also forbade same-sex relationships and sexual relations. So that one law brought together kind of a whole collection of people um, in, in an interesting way that the system saw us as, as somehow immoral and worthy of an act which even used the word morality in it. Um, mm. And I think, I think maybe in my favor was the support of my family. And, and I know we're gonna talk about that a bit later, but in the early years of coming out to myself in my late teens, and then in, to my family in my early 20s, I, I really experienced no rejection from them. And I think that, that was a very important anchoring experience. Um, but I think pretty soon I've turned my, my life's work into thinking about gender and identity and, of course, HIV at that time as, a, as seeing it as a political thing, not just mm -hmm. a personal thing, but about a striving to build a more inclusive society. So I think the, the ability in my life to turn what was maybe a disadvantage, if you like, into something that that fueled me and fired my interests mm. in thinking about, well, what is a society that is inclusive for everybody? So not mm. just gay and lesbian folk, but but trans people or people of color or people, um, you know, who are living with disabilities. And, and of course, you know, if we think about systems of patriarchy as being ex, um, you know, difficult for women, I'm also interested in, in, in understanding how, how women have been marginalized or positioned in relation to male power. So yeah, turning my own story into something that is about making the world a bit different for everybody, I think has been quite important to me. Um, so not only seeing myself as a victim, yeah. but but as someone who's transforming that experience into something perhaps um, generative for society. Can I ask you a question? I've never asked you before, Pia. I guess, um, I've never yeah. asked Pia what it felt like to be gay in high school. Um, in school I was at. Yeah, we were both at the same school, Sue, which <laughs> was one of the Marist uh, family of schools in Durban. Um, you know, it, it was weird because I, in my in my younger years of my high school, around stand, what was called Standard 7 then, giving my age away, um, I belonged to a, a group, friendship group of, we were really misfits. And we were, we would all gag, gang up and gather together of, in, in break time. Um, not all of us were gay. Some of us were just nerdy. In, in current language, we probably say some of us were neurodivergent or maybe on the autism spectrum. Um, and some of us were given girls' names as a kind of, you know, what it was an all-boys school. It was a kind of mocking way of of treating us. And so we we kind of retreated into that that sort of space of I suppose safety. But but it was a small school. It was a 
you know, there was a veneer of protection and politeness. So I didn't experience physical bullying or anything like that. I think, but that that sort of othering experience felt maybe vaguely humiliating and sort of awkward. And I think cemented in me the idea that I'm other, that I'm different. I'm never going to belong to the main crowd. And and I think that sort of outsider status is is mm. is painful and yet fascinating at the same time. When I got a bit older, I mean, ultimately became a prefect and got a reputation of of being sort of clever. I gained a new power in the in the in the school space. So I was I was now someone to be respected and had some authority. And then my my reputation shifted. And I think the any murmurs or rumors about me being gay sort of just frittered away. Um, I don't know what is what was your what do you think about what I've just said, Andrew? Yeah, I mean I, therapy I, have sense, for us, Sue. <laughs> I have a sense of you standing to the side with your friends while I was running around with the ball or attacking people. <laughs> I have a sense that you there was this group that was different from the rest of us. Yeah. Which was true. Hmm. You know, I really appreciate that um, the question and the answer that you've given. Um, and, and I've had a completely different experience in many ways, but similar in other ways, in that I was completely mainstream in being um, white, privileged, English speaking, heterosexual, vanilla, you know, everything was down the middle of the of the tarmac. But I was other in that I was also um, raised in a very religious family and I came from a, a we, we didn't have all the money that everyone else in the school had. And and so I also felt other. And I wonder, um, uh, you know, I think there's many people you can learn and identify with what you shared, even as heterosexual, you know, people who are normal as far as society calls normal um, because I think in so many ways everybody does have some experience of their own otherness so I really thank you for sharing that even if our experience was really small compared with the enormity of of what you were facing um, we can so many of us can relate I feel so thank you for that question and um Thank you for um, asking that empathetic question, Andrew. Can you tell us a little bit about what it feels like to have grown up in a family with with a gay brother and a lesbian sister? I mean, it's, I don't know how I feel about that question because it felt, I just kind of slipped into this experience. It, I suppose it happened over time. Our sisters were older than us were liberal, very progressive in their ideas. Um, unconventional in many ways. I mean, our sister Charmaine is very unconventional, never really fitted comfortably into the apartheid society we lived in. So it felt like it just adapted naturally. And I suppose also feeling like, a, we sound quite pathetic, but we both seem to feel like misfits and for different reasons. It just seemed to feel like, okay, that's fine. I remember the exact moment that Pierre told me he was gay. I was 20 years old. That's how long he waited, Pierre. <laughs> And uh, we were driving over a bridge in Durban and he said something along the lines of, I must tell you something very important, I'm gay. And my response was, oh, okay. I, I didn't really, I'm not sure why, I didn't really feel any sense of shock or outrage or um, I said, perhaps it was our family that we were reasonably progressive. Not our extended family, certainly, but our, within our media family, there was a lot of acceptance. Um, yeah. That's interesting, Andrew, um, if I may jump in here, because, and I suppose that this, what I'm going to say can sound, could sound critical, but maybe it's just about opening up this yeah. idea that you, you, you've raised here, is that mm. an, an OK response could be, mm. on the one hand, fantastic, yeah. it's like it's no big deal, you know, mm. you see these TikToks of parents when the child comes out to them and they say, oh, We've been waiting years for you to tell us, you know, and it's no big deal, life moves on. But I suppose it can also be experienced as an, a non-event in a way which is like, aren't you curious mm. about me, about how I got to this point? Mm. Um, are you interested in knowing, have I been in love 
Um, do I feel safe? Um, do I feel okay about being gay in this family? Mm -hmm. um, I, I, we may have had those conversations and, and, and I can't remember now if we did much time has passed, but I suppose possibly also you were, although you probably knew that I was gay somewhere, you were needing time to digest that information mm. um, and perhaps not or not wanting to appear rejecting or critical. Mm. Um, what do mm. you what do you think about I, that? I think it was just the first time that it was discussed. So I don't think we were ready for a conversation to carry on. But I think yeah. that did happen over time. Yeah. 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 Certainly neutrality is not always a good stance, you know. Mm. But it's interesting what you've raised, um, Pierre, I, I, I love it because, you know, uh, that is one of the challenges of being in the mainstream, if you like, is, uh, you know, it's difficult to know what we don't know. Mm. So it's really helpful to hear that and hear that actually, you, you know, you should be asking. Um, yeah. Tell me about it. Tell me about your your experiences. That's what you would have liked, even if it is the sixty year old of you looking back at the yeah. twenty something year old of you. Um, you know, it's helpful to know that that the questions are um part of the journey that you would like, and uh, we don't know that. We just don't know yeah. what we don't. And also, I suppose, no. and this this goes to this theme of allyship that we we are are bringing to the table today is is um finding that sort of delicate balance between showing a kind of respectful curiosity mm. and connecting with the person and not appearing intrusive or mm. crass you know or mm. or wanting the minutiae of something that's quite personal that you wouldn't ask any other person ordinarily yeah. Um, I suppose that's the delicate balance. Andrew, you wanted to jump in there, I think. I mean, in the educational sort of sphere, uh, it's the either way you pay a price. If if you're neutral and polite on something, that pleases some people, but others who need your support actually resent it. I've, I've known pupils have said about other teachers, are, are they? I don't know where they stand and, and I need their support. And that's something that comes up. At the same time, when you're not neutral, when you're kind of open-minded, but but clear about your stance, um, that causes, that's, I think, the preferred approach I take, but certainly causes a new set of problems and that people people resent, um, sometimes resent your your stance and they perceive it as means of judging them and their stance, which is different from, from yours. So I think these are hard choices you make when you're an ally. And whatever choice you make, there is a price. Can we just stop there for one moment and define allyship and, and, and being an ally for, for our listeners who may not exactly know the term? Yeah. Do you want to yeah. take the microphone as an educator, Andrew? Yeah. Uh, you can probably explain yeah, it well. Do you want to or should I? I think Pierre's better version of theory. Okay. Go on then. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think they, they, you, we can come up with grand definitions when I try to, I try to find a simple one, which I think is standing up for a marginalized person uh, because you can ha you have privilege that you can leverage mm -hmm. um I, I quite like that that definition personally because it's recognizing that someone has an identity that has othered them in some way and that could be anything from being gay or lesbian or trans or in some context a person of color a foreigner, a woman, someone living with a disability, or someone of a different faith, you know, um, and then the person who is the ally actually will often have have a certain amount of privilege um, and ease in the world, if you like, around that particular issue because they are not that other. So, in the case of Andrew and me, or, or a gay straight allyship relationship. Um, it's recognizing that your, your your gay sibling or friend or part or colleague um, is probably or has been on the receiving end of forms of discrimination and in the eyes of some people is a devalued person. Um, and so you you don't experience that because your your heterosexuality gi gives you the status of unproblematic and normal in the world. Mm -hmm. And so you you see 
opportunities to stand up for that person. Um, and, 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 I, and I'm sure as we'll talk, finding the balance between speaking for, speaking with, speaking on the behalf of, you know, the person yeah. who is, has the lesser identity. I mean, I think, you know, again, in my setting, um, allyship is, is a very powerful healing process. I think it has powerful consequences, you know, and benefits for, for people who need that support. And I've seen that happen in school settings. So we should never underestimate the power of, of allyship. Um, but I will say that as an ally, you, your position is sort of liminal, because on the one hand, you, you're not that person without privilege. I can't speak for the the gay experience or the black experience, which is a much more tricky area to, to be an ally with. Um, and I, I can't speak for that experience. But at the same time, when you step out of your, your conventional stereotypical view as a straight white male, you also lose something kind of, um, you don't align yourself so much with, with people who are straight and male. And so people view you sometimes with a kind of suspicion. I know that, you know, if people see me coming sometimes, they think I'm the work police. I'm going to judge them for their behavior so you step out of a, a kind of a safe place where people you know what you think and you're somewhere in the middle um and which can cause its own complications yeah that's such a good point is that um being an ally sometimes you can be seen as a traitor or as someone you know who's who's um who's doing this for some kind of performative gain you know that you are performing your allyship in a way you use the word woke you know that you you'll be seen as oh you know andrew's trying to be x y and z um you know and and he's doing it for narcissistic reasons um and there may be indeed some people who you know who who can soothe that part of themselves they want to be seen as you know morally upright or whatever um so there, there are challenges, I think, to being an ally, um, and not not least, which is the people you're allying to or with can be suspicious of your motives as well. Yeah. I, I, I think what I'm hearing in this conversation, um, which I think is, is really helpful because the lack of well-being of being othered is so excruciating. Um, and 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 also, the other part of the lack of well-being is is th that um, oblivion um, and arrogance that goes with being unaware that other people are othered, mm -hmm. and that you know many people just haven't had their minds open, and and you know you 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 have to be compassionate with them because whatever it is that allowed them to be like that uh you know i'm sure it doesn't come from a place of wanting to harm it comes from an oblivion or a fear or whatever it is for them um and so there's a lack of well-being in that oblivion as well and and so i just think that this is such a helpful conversation to raise awareness and and what i'm hearing from both of you is that the critical element is curiosity is for for um marginalized people who experience othering to be curious of what it feels like not to be that in a specific domain um, and you know what does it feel like to try and be an ally and for allies to try and or other people to try and understand what it feels like to be marginalized and if we can bring that respectful curiosity it seems like we've got the winning formula um, but as you say there's sacrifices to be made in order to step out of the comfort of your mm. uh, privilege, I think. And also, I think if you call yourself an ally, it kind of the moral um, situations you're in are more intense because you you ask more of yourself. Yeah. So if I'm in a situation where someone says something homophobic, I feel obliged to to do something, and um, I sometimes agonize over what my my response should be. I feel like, well, if not me, who's going to do it? You know, I'm the ally. So it can put you under more kind of uh, more internal pressure um, because you feel called to, to say something. And also make you vulnerable because 
yeah. you don't always know what the right thing is to say and yeah. just tempting to be politically correct instead of come from your heart and so there is a lot of vulnerability there i think that you're sharing about yeah that's true uh, <clears throat> please pierre i'd love to hear your response i was i was thinking about your your introducing of the mental wellness theme in, in your sort of summation of where we were at in our conversation. And I um it it struck me that it that you introduced another aspect which I thought was quite important. Not only that for the person who is being allied to or with the mental health benefits of that are enormous. You know, feeling that mm. you know other people actually care about an issue which doesn't affect them directly. Mm. Um, and that they are willing sometimes to put themselves out mm. for you. Um, and just, and the kind of positive affirmations that you get. I have a, a former boss who, you know, I think in a, in a quiet way has been an incredible ally to me in my life. You know, we, we became friends over the 30 years or so we worked together. And, you know, it just felt like the way that she was just always so principled in her allyship was incredibly empowering for me because it just felt like this amazing person has my back. And is is a very strong feeling, I think, for someone who's been allied to. And I never felt like she wanted to take over my life or my pain or my discrimination or get get anything from it. She it really came from a place of principle, I believe. But the other thing that you you said made me think too, which is that. I'm thinking about you, Andrew, sometimes, um, is that there are other people in your space who who see you as holier than thou, you being overly woke, is to think of them also as not always in a good place, mm-hmm. is, is, a, is an act of generosity, you know, because they're mm-hmm. saying not so good things about you, but yeah. to be able to recognize that they are coming from a place of hurts and... Um, and maybe just not having had chances to work through some of this stuff. Mm-hmm. And they sometimes get stuck in their positions, sure. you know, and they can't find a way out of that. They kind of dug themselves into a hole. Mm. And I've got understood that you can't you can't take people on directly. First of all, you have no right to. And second of all, it, it simply entrenches people's feelings. You have to find a way to be accepting and ask questions. And, and you, as you said earlier, Sue, to be curious about other people as well. And that's the way in, I think, to the conversation. But you know, any kind of um, definitive stance on these issues really just entrenches people's biases and, and their values. So I think the second most important thing that we're talking about here is compassion. Compassion for everyone, mm-hmm. you know, that's... Uh, you know, if you haven't been aware, you haven't been made aware, you have been able to live with your blinkers on, then you also deserve compassion because, you know, you, you don't know what you don't know. Yeah. Yeah. That's and... true. And I think sometimes compassion gets a bad rap because it's a soft um, emotion and it can be interpreted as, oh, you're forgiving everybody for their sins, you know, to use an old Catholic analogy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you don't hold people accountable because you have compassion for the fact that they grew up in a racist home, for example, you know, so that they've arrived at the point where they have an unexamined life around race. And having compassion for that doesn't mean you can't hold people to account as well. But I, does, I do think it allows you, allows me, to see that everybody has a journey, you know, and they've arrived at this point because of their particular life circumstances. And yes, sometimes you may even have compassion for someone who's not a very nice person. Mm-hmm. But I can tell you in high school setting, you know, that, that sort of phase of judgmentalism in adolescence, there's this not a big appetite for forgiveness and compassion. Um, you have to work at it. And I think there's, you know, a lot of students will tend to to judge and to want harsh punishment for things that when people are. And so if you're going to be an ally that you, you can't be an ally who um who takes that kind of stance. But as an ally who is compassionate, there's another challenge and that is for those students who feel like you're letting people off the hook. Um and that's a huge fiery debate in high schools and I'm sure universities as well. 
you know, how dare you have compassion for the other? And yet, isn't that, I mean, you know, I love Gandhi's um, statement, be the change you want to see in the world. And so if we, if we, if a marginalized person or an ally is asking people to step out of their reality into somebody else's reality, then on a level, they have to do the same for them. Mm. So, yeah. you know, ultimately, we want to bring well-being to all people. Um, yeah. I think. Well, it's a, it's a sign of maturity that that stands, and one has to work at it. Yes. Yeah. And it's certainly not, as you rightly say, available for young people, <laughs> because part of growing up is is taking a stance and finding yeah. out who you are and what you really believe in. Exactly. Yeah. So how do you feel that um, uh, this goes, you know, does it uh, take you into understanding, to be an ally, does it take you into um, understanding what it feels like to be um, marginalized in other ways, other than in your sexual orientation or your gender, which we haven't really even talked about, but we'll talk about it just now. But do you feel that there's an intersectionality in it? I don't, there, there is and there isn't, because um, you would think somebody who's, who is, um, you know, very open to being an ally towards gay people would not, would also be an ally to, to black people and trans people and so on, wherever the group that's marginalized is, and that isn't always the case. Often it's the case, but often it's not the case. And I think it's it's tied to experience. I, I have a ex-colleague who, um, he was very sensitive to issues around um, gay and LBG, LGBT, but couldn't understand the debate around race and, and just didn't understand why there had to even be one. Um, and that, I think, had to do with her own personal experience in one part of, of um, this human experience of being gay. But the other parts were closed down. So, you know, I think you'd like to believe people are intersectional, but we're not. Yeah? Mm. Yeah. Mm. I mean, I, I think you, you've summed it up pretty well. I think as for me, um, I have definitely, and I think I mentioned this earlier, been able to translate my experiences of being marginal into thinking about how power works in society and who has privilege and power and who doesn't and how systems of oppression can work to make people really excluded. Um, so I've, I'm very passionate about the idea that not only do I am I now interested in other forms of exclusion and oppression, I'm also interested in how they link. You know, so an, an intersectionality theory, not to get too, you know, theoretical, argues also that when people have more than one marginal identity or a collection of intersecting identities, they can experience, in a sense, compound forms of yeah. othering. So you can, if you're black and gay then mm. your otherness is, can be around sexuality and around race in certain mm. contexts. Mm. You know, so you can, you, you know, so everybody has a unique sort of positioning of, of the constellation of all the identity factors. Mm. And I think it can be helpful sometimes, even for allies to, to see that in, in another context, somebody can be an ally to them. Yeah. You know, so that, that, so that you can see yourself both as an ally and mm. as someone who's allied to mm. around a, a different matter. Yeah. I wanted to know what it's like for you, Andrew, to, um, or can you comment on what it's like in a school, this subject of intersectionality? Do you find that those that are prone towards being allies can be allies for many different marginalized communities or people or do you find that most people are kind of quite lasered in on their specific form of allyship at the student level i would say that it's mostly you know quite progressive students who are very intersectional in their allyship um i can think of two different sides of this coin so for example i've been in schools where there's a an LGBT and allies um, club, essentially, which is kind of a support group. And it's it's um, authorized by the school. So it's, it's part of the formal process. And that gives it huge credibility. And, and those meetings are quite interesting because you have a diverse range of people. So although there's 
intersectionality, there's also a common theme, which I think helps to bind people together. But also it's quite tough because I, remember I had a, a colleague who in a, in a staff training session told staff that, you know, she's black, female and lesbian. And she just feels so tired of all those three um, prejudices that she has to, yeah, that she has to to deal with. And she just, she always said she was tired, tired of these multiple things. Um, so yeah, that's just two sides of the same coin. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you know, just even thinking about that is just so important because it just raises awareness to. Mm -hmm to people of what sort of an experience might somebody be having. And, and, and that brings up, um, com, you know, the ability to, to think about things differently and therefore behave differently. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, there's, there's a, a thought I had, Sue, so I don't know if I could jump in, is that um, I, I, I met that colleague um, um, that Andrew's talking about, um, and I, I thought she was amazing. Um, you know, I, I'm gay, she's a lesbian, so I suppose, well, I mean, I'm also going to second guess what I'm about to say, but it doesn't give you an instant connection, but it can, in that moment, you can think, uh, you understand something, we share something, mm. um, but you can find other differences emerge quite quickly, but around sexuality, you know, and I, I, I can, I think it's tempting then for an ally to want to overhelp you know, almost to step in and take over. Mm. And I know we wanted to talk a little bit today about some of the possible pitfalls of allyship, I think. Mm. And, and you know, one of the, there is a danger sometimes in sort of ending up feeling like the kind of um, rescue kind of script idea. You know, mm. I'm going I'm to, I've got my winged cape and I'm going to mm. fly in and make it okay for this person. Um, sometimes that can take away their agency mm -hmm. um, and you know there's a there's a danger in in sometimes allies sort of taking over a story or an issue mm -hmm. I think particularly around around race but I think it can apply to other things is mm -hmm. how you know white people speaking for black people mm -hmm. and their mm -hmm. pain and their story is that mm -hmm. in, a, in an organizational or other setting you mm -hmm. know that community has to be empowered to speak for itself and mm. and the, and one maybe the ally from behind the scenes can challenge the fact that they are marginalized and that the power dynamics don't look good you know mm. you can raise an issue in a strategic planning meeting which is like why are there are no black leaders in this organization mm. but ultimately mm. the black people in the organization need to be allowed to speak for themselves and find their own story and power in that space. I would agree. I think around race being an ally is very fraught with um, complications and interpretations. You have to, to tread very carefully there. Um, you don't want to be this white savior, you know. And, and also, black people are not a, are not a hegemony, are not a sort of a, a, a homogenous. Homogenous group, yes, my words are failing me there. They aren't homogenous, so you know you'll have a full range of political viewpoints as well. Um, so I, I certainly, I think my go-to strategy as an ally is to is to try to be um, as honest and self-reflective and sincere as possible. So kind of own my deficiencies and my inability to speak for that for that person, and to ask, do you need my help in some way? So that's that's kind of my go-to strategy. If you can be sincere and self-reflective and say, based on the little, the little that I know, what should I do next? You know, as opposed to speaking with confidence about other people. Yeah, it it really strikes me, uh, you know, that not all, you know, the whole um, gay and lesbian community are also not homogenized. You know, and and so. I think it comes back to that same thing we said just now that curiosity is the absolute answer because it's really what I'm hearing from uh, and both of you is that it would be um, uh, you know horrible to come as an ally and put a marginalized person be it you know whatever reason that they're marginalized as a victim you know that would enhance this power dynamic and actually make the situation worse rather than better uh, and so I think that's a huge awareness to hold as 
somebody who would like to step into the role of being an ally. I think, so I think self-reflective is, is so important. You have, you have to think about who you are and where you come from and what your values are and what your limitations are. So I have quite a big interest in critical thinking in our school. And that's what we, we talk a lot about, self-reflexiveness in knowing where we, who we are, where we come from. Because without that, you 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 can't understand your motivations and you can't tread as warily as you sometimes have to tread, you know. So yeah, part of the... Thing. Part of the work, there is self-reflection, you know, in, in, in thinking about today, I, I reread an article that I'd found before, and it used the phrase ally labor. Um, mm. And, and, and it's sort of defined broadly as sort of leveraging your privilege, even though the outcome is uncertain. And mm. um, so I think it's about knowing it's the right thing to do, but not being confident that it's going to be the outcome you necessarily wanted. Or in some instances may not even be that well received, you mm. know. Um, but in a sense, you've got to do it because you believe in it, rather than you want approval and a pat on the back and 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 some kind of you know naughty badge out of it. I suppose it's definitely a trap you can fall into. This idea of well, I'm a good person because I'm doing this. You have to, when that instinct arises, you have to fight against it. You have to realize you're doing it because it's you believe it's the right thing to do. And that you can't assume that you'll get praise and credit for it. It has to come from inside. And it, it, there can't be an external validation that, that comes your way. If that's what you're wanting, it's just going to be very painful for you. So, so it's something around self-awareness and humility coming from a place of, Absolutely. I, I don't know, and I'm, I'm treading lightly, and I'm treading with, you know, and in you know, I'm a mindfulness practitioner, and and one of the things that we use um, as a tool that I think is so incredibly useful is the tool of observership, sort of almost watching yourself from the outside, maybe even watching yourself um, as if you were in the shoes of the person you're trying to serve or, or, or you know offer support to. You know, if you could look back at yourself and see yourself out of their eyes, perhaps that would give you the insight that you need to be able to do this with use. And um, as you said, if, you, if you're curious and you can ask those people questions, yeah. um, you learn about how they perceive you and whether you're on the right track. And be vulnerable enough to receive the feedback as well yeah. as ask. Yeah. That's yeah. true. <laughs> That's true. Wow. And I, I would love to know from you, Pierre, um, if you could choose, um, as a gay man, it, and and your experience of being a gay young person, if you could choose um, a quality in your family and in your friends and in the people that uh, you know surround you, what would be the most important quality that would have brought you the well-being that perhaps could have enabled you to have an easier ride? Um, I would say... Or set of qualities, maybe. Yeah, I mean, curiosity is quite high up there. So an, an, a genuine interest in other people's lives and stories um, and listening without prejudice, I suppose I would add to that. So that bringing not judgment, a non-judgmental curiosity, mm -hmm. I think would be the most powerful thing. Because when you listen, and I'm thinking about what you, observership, I think was a phrase you you use that was also for yourself but when listening you know often when we, we we invite people to tell their stories sometimes we already want to send it in a particular direction or we they start to tell us things that are discomforting but we want to shut that down because it's not easy to hear um so i think that kind of curi curiosity where you are willing to go where the story takes you um would be an mm. interesting Quality. Are we're not, we not defining progressive values, though. I mean, I don't know if a conservative person has that much of an interest in in change and in learning about difference, but perhaps more of an interest in continuity and tradition in the past. And so, how do you how do you um, instill curiosity in people who are who, who have comfort in the past and tradition? Mm. I think that's a really good question. Can we explore that? <laughs> well, I think because, you know, as we said, that that is some of society. We can't make it other because it isn't. It is like that. 
Yeah. I mean, I, I became very conscious when I began to take, do some diversity work that there is a very powerful conservative ideology in every organization I've been in. Even if the organization, I, I, my rule of thirds, which is very crude, but it definitely, I think, has some truth to it, is that in most organizations, a third of people are progressive, a third are conservative, and a third are somewhere in the middle. And that means any kind of allyship has to, has to contend with the conservative viewpoint, which is about tradition, it's about continuity, it's not about change. It's not about questioning identity, questioning oneself. Because my if my values and ideas come from my church and my culture, and who am I to, to question them? So um, the stance I've taken in, in my classrooms and in my workshops is to kind of say, is to acknowledge that these viewpoints or these value systems exist, these worldviews do exist, and they're not going away. I can't argue out of your worldview. I can't say to you that your, your love of traditional values is wrong. And if I argue against you, it's not going to change you. So I, I'm usually upfront about my own set of values, but I also say that I really want to, I want to hear from other people's positions. And I try to make my, my spaces accommodating to difference. And I try to, to, um, to sometimes take up the position of conservative values in my conversations in, in the classroom. So it's, it's trying to find a way to, to show people that you're very open to different opinions. You're very open to people who are not, well, whose cultures and religions say that they, that homosexuality is evil. And you're going to burn, and a students once said to another student, you're going to burn in hell because you're a lesbian. And the trouble is it comes from his own faith. Not that faith always has that value system, but in his case, it comes from a particular place that he firmly believes in. And to take that conversation forward, you have to create a space where people feel like you can say something that it goes against the grain, but is not is not um, not insulting. So you have to create a climate for for that discussion, and then take people forward and make people self reflective. So you can't close the debate down, and you can't close that worldview down. Um, that's my I, incredibly useful what you're saying, and it comes back to we can't marginalize the the conservative people. You know, because then we're not uh, healing society with our allyship. We're actually just creating a different set of marginal and marginalization, if you like. So yeah. I really like what you're saying. We have to make a space for that yeah. and, and create a tolerance for everybody's viewpoint and not shame people for what they think in order to I help mean, them open their minds, maybe, going forward. I can read Pierre's expression. He's going to disagree with us. <laughs> I can imagine. Hardly. Hardly. That's what we want. This isn't just a sibling dynamic, but I, I part of me wants to say what Andrew said is is could be read as privilege speaking. You know, you have the luxury of being able to listen to all viewpoints because in your sort of whiteness and your heterosexuality and your mm -hmm. cisgenderness, you you occupy an ease in the world. So when you belong to a marginalized category and you hear people saying things, sometimes you want them to burn in hell, to be quite mm. frank, mm. because, you know, you don't have the privilege of not knowing what it feels like in uh, certain aspects of your life to be oppressed, oh. you know, and to be really hurt. Mm. I mean, you know, I, I, as a gay person, think about somebody who was arrested in Uganda recently mm. and mm. is facing the death penalty. Mm for aggravated homosexuality. Mm -hmm. You know, it's hard for me to feel impartial about that or dispassion yeah. or just mildly curious. It's like every fiber of my being is so angry about that and so sad mm -hmm. at another level and thinking what kind of society produces that kind of law and those kinds of people who want to feel that way about a person who's just going about their life, you know? So... Mm -hmm. So I want, sometimes I want to clarify though. Is a privilege. I want to clarify though. The approach I take is to say there are certain, and I use the constitution as, as my guide. I say there are certain constitutional non-negotiables in this space. So the one of, and in the constitution it says every different identity is is protected and worthy of respect. Our constitution uses different words, but that's essentially what it says. So in my in my space, my classrooms and workshops, the same applies. 
These things are non-negotiable, as is polite, respectful speech. But the Constitution also says that you have a right to debate your ideas. And that's so that's kind of the nuance of how I present it. There are some things we cannot do or say. Those are not negotiable. But if you're prepared to reflect and think and talk honestly, then all bets are off and we will talk. I, I uh, would confer with you having uh, you know, agreed with what you said in terms of uh, um, creating a space for everybody to express their ideas. That doesn't include putting someone to death because they're different. I mean, that's totally a separate matter, you know. So <clears throat> important to to say that a healthy discussion that allows for everybody's viewpoint to be expressed mm. with non-judgment um, enables awareness to grow as opposed to mm. let's tolerate discrimination and and brutality. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there have to be rules of engagement, no question. Yeah, yeah, boundaries. What are you thinking, Claire? <laughs> um, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I, I kind of, I've got two conversations going on at the same time. Mm. You know, that some, if you, if you talk to some activists, they mm. might say politeness only takes you so far. You know, the idea of rules of civilized discourse many of which I've used in my own work, mind you, mm. so I'm being a bit you know, disingenuous here. But there mm. are moments when I think there is, it can be necessary to disrupt the idea mm. of politeness, yep. um, you know, just mm. to to mm. acknowledge that sometimes you've got to shake things up a little bit. Yeah. True. True. It, it seems like it's not either or, it's actually and, yeah. you know, we, each situation requires its own set of mm. uh, rules of engagement and its own sort of decision about how to proceed forward, I think. But when you have, when, you take, when people are, are disrupting, it's because the process I've been talking about has failed in some way. Mm. But I do take your point. I mean, I, I do think organizations often have rapid change around important issues when there's a, a powerful disruption. Mm. And sometimes that is necessary. I mean, I was going to say that that you know this could be an important point to end because Andrew's just agreed with something I said. <laughs> <laughs> that seems like a perfect point for me to end on a high, right? I thought you agreed with me, actually. <laughs> <laughs> if we had to come back after this section of the conversation to you, Pierre, and say, could you give us a nugget? going forward what what is the most important thing to bring well-being to those minorities that are marginalized i think it, it goes back to something you said earlier but um to to meet people where they're at in a sense with a sense of humility and interest and mm. curiosity and compassion and say i'm here just to listen and I think from that you get to understand people's stories um, and where and whether and if you need to do anything. Maybe just it, it, it isn't incumbent upon you to do something with what you've heard, but being genuinely, warmly interested in somebody else's story and, and kind of almost feel a sense of stepping into their shoes, although that's not really ever possible, I think is a very powerful thing. Mm. But it's uh, it's a healing thing to know you're not alone, mm. and that Absolutely. somebody's there with you, even yeah. if they're a tinsy yeah. bit there because they can't really be there. Yeah, yeah. I, I've seen the the powerful effect on mental health for, for for good when organizations have have said openly that we will protect these identities. This is part of who we are. Where that isn't possible, though, having just an individual ally, an individual relationship with somebody is equally powerful. And I think having someone that you can you can talk to, if not an organization, is is a very powerful and healing experience. And certainly my my understanding of the current sort of um, world of teenagers is that they are very traumatized by so many things. And that each ally plays a very powerful part in, in making them feel better about themselves. One thing we haven't talked about, and, and just before we close, can you just alert us?
to um, the subject of AIDS and HIV. Can you know so much about this subject, Pierre? Um, what do we need to know around the communities who suffer from these uh, diseases and experiences well, that go with? I think South Africa is an interesting example because our epidemic is actually overwhelmingly heterosexual, um, mm. and so um, the number of you know in in, in say America, Europe, Australia, um, largely, um, with some exceptions, it's been localized amongst men of sex with men or gay men. Um, and I think that that sort of is already important. So it's not really about who you are when it comes to HIV, but it's about understanding what is it that brought you to the place where you were vulnerable to acquiring something, usually through a, a a, a, an act which is regarded as good and as as life affirming and life giving we all need and want love and intimacy and sex most of us i suppose there are exceptions and that's fine um so understanding how is it that that we got to the point where um people did get infected and i think i've always tried to think about it not only through the lens of individual couple or relationship dynamics but what what are the sort of societal phenomena? Uh, it could be, for example, gender inequality, or or poverty, or lack of access to good healthcare and information, or even if you think about think something like migrancy. You know, like men who work on the mines and have have two lives because mm -hmm. they want love and intimacy in both places that they live in and work in. Um, so for me, it's always been about thinking about how those sort of broader social forces and phenomena coalesce into that moment when one individual might infect another, not because they wanted to, but because they were, they were doing something that which is every, all human societies do, which is have a sexual moment of intimacy. That's helpful. Maybe a different take on it. <laughs> That's very helpful. And thank you for that. Not some, not you know, not a way of thinking about it. I've ever had access to. So thank you for that. Um, do you have something that you want to add to that, Andrew? Or if not, can you give us something mm. as a nugget to to take away from our conversation? Hmm. Um, just be self-reflective, be kind, compassionate, and do what you can do because every bit makes a difference. Mm. And uh, beyond your family, you know, it's not just about doing it for your brother, but but taking it into your school or your work or wherever you you absolutely. show up. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Don't you love how someone asks you for a nugget and then adds their piece to it? My <laughs> 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 nugget was very small. I think you had to. <laughs> you needed to embellish his nuggets a little bit. Make <laughs> <laughs> a bigger nugget. <laughs> Thank you for that. And 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 you, um, Pierre, is there something you want to close with? Um, I think probably not to underestimate um, those small things. I mean, we can think about allyship in, in a grand political language, um, social movements and so on, but and activism. But I think so much of what makes life bearable and interesting is the is the those little daily moments mm -hmm. of connection that we experience and i think that um allyship between like if i could think about andrew and i as a as an example it it really is um affirming mm -hmm. and and feeling like that you've got that that connection that you have so it's in the little littlenesses of life, I think, mm. that allyship can be really, really powerful and important. I've got a nugget. <laughs> By the way, I just have to say I love that nugget. I'm taking that one too. Yeah. <laughs> Please, can we have your, your last nugget, Andrew? Um, there's different ways to be an ally. I think sometimes people struggle to be openly um, uh in, in alliance with somebody in a public situation where it's quite stressful, but you can go afterwards and quietly be there for the person. That's mm -hmm. 
nearly as important yeah. as being a different kind of outspoken ally. So there are many ways you can be a supporter. Yeah. I think that's really helpful too, to mm. enable people, allow people to do it their way. Correct. Yeah. 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 Thank you. Oh, this has been such a valuable conversation. I'm so glad we had it. And I actually think we should have another one in a few weeks time or months time when more questions have filtered into uh, all of our uh, minds. Uh, because I just think this is a conversation that needs to be gotten out there because how can we be well when some of our society are not well? Mm. And we can only really all be well when everybody's well in the world. So that is just what we've been talking about and i deeply appreciate your time your insights your wisdom both of you from your lives and your work and your studies and and your vulnerability and honesty it's just been a total treat to spend some time talking and thank you for all that you've shared thanks for your thank work you. as well thanks sue we, we really appreciate it thank you Thank you for listening to this episode of Your Route to Wellbeing. I hope that this episode has been really useful and helpful for you. Thank you to the team who brought it into being and to our special guests who so generously gave of their time and their insights. Please remember to share it with all in your network who you think it can help. Sharing help that really helps is what makes the world go round.